Green Beers Podcast. This is Mike Savage. Charlie Lord. And Ani. This week on Green Beers Podcast, we're going to be talking about the main beer company and one of their pale ales, the pale ale. Called and a tiny beautiful something. Tiny beautiful something. And the Woods and Waters. IPA. A beautiful IPA. And for the sustainability impact today, we're going to be talking about Carbon Free Boston's uh, report, which was recently done by the Boston Green Ribbon Commission. Uh, it's a very important report uh, that talks about how the city is going to get to their goals of carbon neutral by 2050. Which is, and really, it's a strategy that's re- relative, relevant to cities around the world. So we're excited about this. Absolutely. Let's uh, jump into the beer. Into the beers. Let's, let's jump into the beers. Main, com- main beer company today. Uh, main beer company based in Freeport, Maine. Uh, their primary sustainability uh, strategy is donating 1%. Uh, they're an important member of something called 1% for the Planet, where they donate 1% of their gross sales uh, for environmental causes. Yeah, so that's, that's not 1% um, of you know, profit. That's, that's 1% of everything, which is very impressive. Uh, and shows who they are uh, as a company. And if you go to their um, building up in Freeport, their new tasting room, they, they would put this up quite proudly in, in big, bold letters uh, in front of a huge case of uh, yeah. delicious beer. Yeah, and apparently when the, when the two brothers who started it uh, launched it, this is uh, Dan and David Clevin, they, um, yeah, they started around the downturn in, 20, in 2008. They were donating to 1% for the planet even when they weren't getting paid, so kudos to them. 1% for the planet, I'm pretty sure, was launched by um, the founder of Patagonia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a little shout out to my friend, uh, Avi Garbo, who is their uh, chief uh, mission officer now. Um, and uh, and Patagonia has always been way ahead of the curve on uh, uh, social responsibility, particularly around the environment. Should we get to the beer? I so the first one is Woods and Waters. Let's take a sip and yep. uh, our chief of Roma. I mean, once you have a sip, okay. Ani's wow. our chief of Roma expert. What do you think of? Absolutely, it smells. It smells alkaline. It's good. <laughs> it has a nice, strong smell of a beer, I guess. <laughs> but it's nice. It's, it's better it's than a, the last time. It's an IPA. So this is what one of the things I love about it. They brewed this special IPA to commemorate the establishment of the Katahdin Woods and Waters National Monument, which is a national monument in Maine. Pretty cool. Wow, fun fact um, for the day. Fun fact for the day. <laughs> and related to their um, commitment to the environment. That's a huge national monument in the Maine wilderness, the, the woods in, the, in much of northern Maine. Uh, Mike, what do you think of the beer? It's good. I, I you know, I... There's some IPAs out there that are a little bit too hoppy, mm-hmm. and this one is not one of those. Uh, it's a solid, solid beer that, that I, I actually enjoy. I do too. It's not bitter. It's not, the hops isn't overwhelming. They actually use main-grown barley, which is also another fun fact about this beer. It's I like it. Keeping it low balanced. Here's a funny thing. When you look up their description of it, they note melon, pineapple, and pink grapefruit. It's a little bit more than I'm getting, but there is a little bit of a fruitiness. But then they say, underlying notes of onion and garlic. 
Wow. I don't even know if I'd say that if I thought that's what my beer tastes. Is that a beer or a curry? <laughs> <laughs> Is it a beer or a curry? <laughs> it sounds like it should be a curry. Yeah. Well, that's what they say about their own beer. Well, I wouldn't have gone with the onion and garlic. I no. actually, I don't, no, I'm not I getting either. that. Yeah. But it's there. You definitely get that little bit of citrus. Yep. Um, and on. It's surprising, but it's it's not overwhelming either. It's, yeah, it's in there. I like it. So we've got another one to taste here from Main Beer Company. This one is called A Tiny Beautiful Something. It's available year round. It's relatively new. It's a pale ale, lower in um, alcohol content than the other one. Yeah, uh, Woods and Waters is a six point two, where this is a five point five, and it's again it's a pale ale called A Tiny Beautiful Something. Aroma officer. The aroma specialist. <laughs> wow. This is more citrus than uh, the previous one, definitely. Mm-hmm. It's not as hoppy, so it doesn't have a strong an, um, an aroma. Full <laughs> <Yeah>. discretion, <laughs> I'm not I'm not a professional aroma therapist, so <laughs> saying, please do not take it seriously. It's just something it's that comes one man's that opinion. pops in my head. Yeah. <laughs> just one man's opinion. That one's interesting, much less hoppy. Um, what do you think, Mike? It's, I, I'm gonna need a second to collect my thoughts here. It's, it's something else. Wow, yeah, very different. Really? It's pretty well balanced, I think. Less hoppy than an IPA. Yeah. But it's not overwhelmed by the, by the it's not overly sweet. No, yeah. it's definitely uh, drier, you know, drier beer, that's That's sure. a good word for it. It's a dry beer that's not hoppy. I like it. All their stuff is good. Yeah. All right. If you're looking for something with a little bit less alcohol content, but a nice balanced flavor that's not too sweet, there you have it. Yeah. Find a beautiful something. I, you know, it doesn't stand out. And I, I don't know if that's what we're looking for here, that beers <laughs> that, that stand out. I think we are. Uh, so <laughs> in this case... We're sending all dozens of our listeners out there to drink beer. Yes. <laughs> we hit the 16 listener mark, so that's something. Yeah, double yeah. digits. Double digits, yeah. As soon... Tell your friends. Tell your... Yeah, tell your... You, you know, can avoid the beers you don't, you don't want. Yeah. Just by listening to this five-minute conversation. You don't have to go into the, the carbon-free Boston. You should. It's a very exciting conversation. But if you want to know what beer is at, what beer is pretty good, uh, listen to Green Beer's podcast. On to the carbon-free Boston report. Uh, the Boston Green Ribbon Commission uh, was commissioned to produce this report uh, in 2016 to find out ways that Boston can actually meet their goal of becoming carbon neutral by 2050. Carbon neutral meaning that though there may be some emissions, they're offset either by carbon sinks like the urban forest in Boston or by buying carbon offsets. Exactly. But essentially it means you're net zero for the, at the city level. Yeah. Exactly. So why does Boston need to meet carbon neutrality by 2050? Well, first, let's talk about, you know, the, the heating days that, that could increase over the next uh, 20, by 2030, right? So today, um, 
we're looking at about 11 days over 90 degrees Fahrenheit in the summer months. Mm -hmm. uh, in the next 12 years, that number could increase to 20 to 40 days over 90 degrees, and five of those days could be over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. So that's significant. That's going to not only in impact everyday life and the health of Bostonians, but also increase the amount of energy we need to use to cool it to to keep yeah. people healthy or safe. Yeah. 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 Additionally, uh, we're also going to see impact rainfall from storms. So it's going to be very hot. It's going to be very wet. Those aren't two good conditions to being a, a productive economy. And, and you know, the severity of storms, which is related to your point, is much greater than it was. We had two days, two storms last year that were not particularly noteworthy. They weren't nor'easters, and they certainly weren't hurricanes where the water came pouring down Atlantic Avenue, where, where our office is situated. That was the other side of Atlantic Avenue. But I think those two episodes of flooding in downtown Boston from relatively innocuous storms really woke a lot of people up to the fact, as I think happened around the world, that climate change is here. It's not a future problem. It's a today problem. Yeah. yeah. So just to basically further Charlie's point about the uh, severity of the storms carbon free report the sorry carbon free boston report actually talks about the unjust effects of these storms on you know uh, low income communities and which is much higher than any other middle class or a high income community yeah these they are really displaced from their homes it's a great point and you know one of the things that's true is that for example in extreme heat events like the ones that mike was mentioning um, the historical data suggests that the neighborhoods that suffer the greatest damage are the ones that are already stressed by low incomes, less public support, less infrastructure. That's where people get sick, that's where people die. So there's a real equity component to this too, yeah. Absolutely, so over the next 30 years, what are we gonna do about it? And, and that's what this report touches on. Mm -hmm. And it breaks it down into where are these greenhouse gas emissions coming from? So you have your main drivers, which buildings, transportations, waste, and the energy supply. So let's talk about buildings because that's, that's what we do every day. We, we try to make buildings more efficient, take carbon out of buildings or carbon emissions out of buildings. So some of the policies that they're looking at uh, to improve carbon emissions are uh, building performance and net zero buildings and uh, I guess the third would be electrification. Yep. So let's let's talk about out of those three, where where do we think the greatest impact is going to be? Well, and it's, it's it's important. It's a it's a great question, Mike. And you know, uh, eighty five percent of the emissions in Boston are from uh, the building stock. There's eighty six thousand buildings in this city. Eighty thousand of those are residential. Renew, of course, focuses on commercial, industrial, and institutional buildings. So we're essentially, we're focused on the other 6,000. Um, but the, the, the real challenge is can we identify, uh, can we do something for the residential building stock to reduce their energy use, make them reduce their demand and increase their efficiency? And, uh, and what can we, can we target the, the highest users among those 6,000 commercial, industrial buildings to really take a bite out of the emissions? One of the things that I thought was absolutely fascinating about the report, it said 85% of the buildings 
that will be part of the problem or part of the energy use in 2050 are, are, are standing today, yep. right? Most of this is about what do we do about today's building stock. There's a big piece about what do we do with new buildings, that 15% of buildings that will be new in 2050. But that's a huge number. 30 years from now, the vast majority of buildings will be the ones that are standing today. Yeah. yeah. So, so I think, you know, first, any new building that goes up has to be net zero. Yeah. You know, that, that's to start. But let's tackle the big issue and where all of this is going to come from is building performance and out of these existing buildings. Uh, Ani, what are the drivers for carbon emissions uh, out, out of these buildings? So m most of these carbon emissions basically come from lighting retrofits, lightings, and what you can do to offset it is lighting retrofits. Your lighting, if it is a fluorescent light that you're using, is basically causing not only uh, inefficiencies in uh, the power consumption, but also in heating or your houses or your building in yeah, an uneven manner. Gives off heat, yeah. Exactly, the filament provides a lot of heat. The window replacement, talk about leakages in the windows, which causes uh, more power consumption for your HVAC system and air handlers in your buildings to work longer hours and with more power consumption. And resources like water, which definitely run through these refrigeration systems, have to be pumped up with more, uh, basically, horsepower pumps. Which consume more and uh, if you go further deep into this it also talks about how you can make an, uh, a building independent so that it can be on and off grid during an emergency situation you know like elevators functioning without using diesel generators which is generally what currently the buildings are looking at right and uh, when I see in, the, in, in this report it very clearly mentions of how uh, the current buildings in the city of Boston, which are around 647 million square feet, which consume that much. A majority of them, like Charlie rightly said, were single-family, single small multifamily, and large multifamily buildings. And I can see from this report that around 70% of all these building types, these three building types, are, were built back in the 1960s. So this, this goes to show that there's so much room for improvement in terms of energy efficiency that can actually abate a lot of the GNG emissions. So efficient lighting, efficient heating and cooling, and there's another strategy there on heating and cooling. Uh, and then as you said, point out, um, efficient and strategies for dealing with um, outages, huge emissions from um, backup systems. So, and, and take it from, from Ani's um, great recap there, Multi-family, that, that's where the majority of the uh, emissions are coming from. There's a uh, misalignment in, uh, in, in doing these retrofits, right? Because a renter is not going to have the same impact in terms of, all right, why, why should I spend money into this building that, that I, that I don't own? Exactly. Right. Yeah. So, Charlie, can you talk about this multi-family and, I guess, the opportunities on the policy side or what we have seen from some of these I mean, we work with or we we've tried to work with multiple uh, housing authorities yeah to try and help them make these um, retrofits a reality with yeah absolutely so and uh, I should know one other thing on the technical side uh, and maybe we were going to go there in a minute but I'll just I'll just put it out there 
On the heating and cooling side, the other big move is, elect is what's called electrification, which was the subject of our most recent um, a newsletter, in fact. Uh, that is taking the heating and cooling system and essentially transferring it to an electric system instead of using fossil fuels like gas and oil. So and for all of these, at the residential and the commercial level, we're talking about efficiency and the buildings. We're talking about efficiency and electrification. And your point is, how do you pay for this in the context of a lot of these buildings, the lease buildings where you've got renters or multifamily buildings where you've got renters? And one of the approaches, you know, is um, Frankly, the energy services agreement that we've developed is a solution to this, but what you're trying to do is align the savings with the, um, with the, end, with the person that's paying the bill, right? Um, so our energy services agreement is aligned with this di potential disconnect because if the tenant is paying the electricity bill uh, or, the, or whatever utility bill, the, um, because we're structured as an operating expense, the owner of the building passed the energy savings agreement through to the tenants as well. That's the terms of most of these leases is that the uh, any operating expense can be passed through to the tenant. You want to pass the you want to pass the savings through and you want to pass the energy savings agreement cost through. As long as those both land at the same place. Remember, renew and any third party funder is picking up the upfront capital costs. And you just want to put the savings and the ESA payment in the same place. And the ESA does that. There's also green leases, which do the same thing, where essentially any investment in, in uh, reduced costs by the landlord can be passed through to the tenants. But it's all the same idea, which is aligning the payments and the savings. That flexibility is so important to really go towards 100% uh, carbon neutral city. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, whether it's a green lease or the energy as a service, it's a win-win it's a when the tenant can receive a lower energy spend through right. energy efficiency and the landlord or the property owner receives a new equipment. I mean, right. so any policies that, that can you know, be rolled out that, that allow this to happen uh, on a broader scale will you know just help this alignment and make these uh, efficiencies happen sooner because yep and you know your 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 this question is crucial right the, the carbon free Boston report talks about what buildings need to do uh, there is some high level discussion of the amount of, of money this will cost to retrofit remember 85 percent of buildings in 2050 are already standing so we're talking about retrofitting existing buildings how are we going to pay for that we got to pay for efficiency upgrades. We got to pay for window and envelope replacements, as I said. We got to pay for lighting. We got to pay for electrification. The building owners are unlikely to do that themselves. We're going to need third-party money. We're going to need large-scale public infrastructure investments like the Green New Deal. But the money's got to come from somewhere to do this. And I think behind all of this carbon-free Boston report is basically a case study for why companies like Renew need to exist where we can align private investors around the idea of paying for this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, so I, I think that that's a great summary on the multifamily, you know, uh, you know, misalignment and how we can hopefully push forward uh, on fixing that alignment. Can I just say one last thing, which is a quote from the report, which sure. thanks, Mike. Sure. 
which says, for carbon neutrality, nearly all of the existing buildings in the city will need to undergo deep energy retrofits, the retrofits that are designed and implemented with a whole building approach. That means you can't skim off the lighting. This is exactly what Renew tries to do on our projects. You can't skim off the lighting or the stuff that's easier to do or has the highest payback. You gotta go after everything. And once you go after everything, you really need to look at the third party funding model or massive public infrastructure spending or both. Yeah. Yeah, because if you go in a, and you stay in your silos, you're going to take the low-hanging fruit and you're going to be left with 20% reduction in emissions instead of you know, 80. 80. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So let, let's talk about the energy supply. And this is uh, transitioning from the electrification that, that you were talking about. If we do convert all of our oil and gas into you know, uh, electric pump heat source, um, that, that's gonna produce like uh, heat via, via electricity, where's that energy, that electric energy gonna come from? We need green supply. And you know, we're in a city and you can't just really put solar panels everywhere. Solar panels will never be um, efficient enough to power all of Boston. So it's gonna have to be a combination of solar, wind, geothermal, and uh, forgetting the big one. Hydro. Hydro. Yes, mm -hmm. thank you guys. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, Massachusetts is one of the leaders in the solar industry, and we're actually seeing um, great movement finally on, on offshore wind, which will deliver significant amount of, of energy. But where, where do we see hydro, hydro Quebec, and geothermal playing a role in the next 10 to 20 years in power in Boston? Well, you're, you're, this is the key point. If you electrify heat sources, move to efficiency, it's all the hitting carbon neutrality at, at the city level, as you said, Mike, is about where's your energy coming from. Some small percentage, maybe significant, will come from on-site renewables, but a lot of it has to do with what's the structure of our grid. And we're in a huge policy debate now about how much of that comes from hydropower in Canada. Uh, which will run through um, distribution lines that have not yet been approved. There, there, there's a main route, there's a New Hampshire route, and there's a Vermont route. The main route is the one that's now on the table, given that Vermont and New Hampshire both said no. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, the big discussion is, do, can we confirm in the context of Hydro-Quebec that the power that comes to Massachusetts to meet the statewide goals for the carbon profile of our grid isn't just going to push, um, uh, create additional uh, dirty uh, power to other to other uh, users. In other words, are we displacing some other user? Is this is this new hydropower, or are we displacing another buyer from hydro Quebec that will then turn around and start buying from them? Midwestern coal plant. I'm making stuff up, but you know these are the yeah. kinds of discussions we need to have because Massachusetts can say we need to have a grid that looks like a circular way, but of course it doesn't do us any good if that's on a net net basis regionally creating the same emissions, and that's the discussion that's happening now. But anyway, hydropower is a big piece of it. You said, Mike, it's going to be a bunch of things, but we have to um, we have to look at and ensure that the grid reaches a certain level of, of carbon reduce carbon emissions in order to hit our goals in Boston. Yeah. Just to 
I mean, I have a question. I have not gone deeper into the Quebec thing, but I'd love to ask you guys. So, if we, if there's an analysis out there that talks about the uh, the forests and uh, the other natural resources that are going to be displaced because of the pipeline that's going to come from Quebec, if that analysis is done of how much carbon reduction is happening there versus the benefit that is going to happen, maybe that could actually convince or make this case very uh, clear as to we should go ahead or not rather than keeping it in a, or are there more angles to this case? What are your thoughts on that? It's a great question. I, I mean, overall, the, the carbon emissions uh, impacts on in terms of the carbon sink on forests is not going to be great. It, it'll be smaller, much smaller than the net benefits of bringing hydropower to Boston, assuming the hydropower that comes to Boston isn't creating additional emissions from a, from another user that's gotten bumped yeah. off the hydro-Quebec grid. So your question is a great one because it goes to the point that you need to do a full accounting of the system in order to understand the carbon emissions impacts, not just for the city, but regionally. Boston can't operate in a vacuum. But you know, and your question about trees is another, raises another <laughs> interesting point. The, car, the concept of carbon neutrality, as we said at the beginning, is net, is net zero carbon emissions. There will be some carbon emissions, but how is the city offsetting them? And, and uh, urban tree cover is a very significant way to reduce carbon emissions in a city. So part of this conversation for carbon-free Boston is what are they doing about urban tree cover? It's not our territory because we're focused on the buildings, but it's all part of the calculus. Absolutely. Yeah. I was just saying it's interesting because urban tree cover isn't there, isn't present in the meeting the demand for clean electricity subsection of this report. So I think it's really important. And just to highlight the different ways that uh, this report has uh, addressed of how you wanna you know, uh, meet the demands of the city. Uh, one is rooftop solar, like you rightly said. The other one's district energy, which basically reduces the cost of generation at multiple sites. But yeah, there, is, there are additional costs for laying down lines of mm -hmm. transmission and distribution. Mm -hmm. Then comes the procurement of clean electricity. This also come, uh, uh, ties in very closely with the policy of the state of having smart come in or the Green New Deal and things like that. And within the within that same realm of policy is having RECs, basically renewable energy credits, wherein you trade in for any clean source of energy that you generate. And the last bit is local PPA and virtual PPAs. So local PPAs are where you generate it on site, and virtual PPAs is when you get it from outer state or outer county or any of that sort, where it's generated elsewhere, but you use it here, which basically comes back to the point of offset. Offsetting your, how, how do you make it carbon neutral? Is by, though you have sources that have carbon emissions, how do you offset it? So virtual PPAs is one way. Right. PPA power purchase agreement, of course, what we do is local is on-site power purchase agreements, which is one of the strategies mentioned there. Yeah. Great. Yes, I, th I think energy supply, you know, is is really, it's, it's up there with buildings, because if the buildings aren't running on a clean supply, at the end of the day, we're not moving too far towards our goal. Mm -hmm. um, but a part of energy supply, and uh, I guess what, what the word would be, you know, I guess, what's sexy right now is energy storage or, or what's finally getting talked about. And the value energy storage brings, whether it is battery storage, pump storage, or s some sort of crane that is holding, you know, weights, Water. you know, <laughs> and it's just 
The second it, it sees a little bit of uh, peak in demand, it lowers it or it raises it when, when electricity is a little bit lower. Um, you know, there, there's plenty of technology out there to help us with storage. And the value of storage is that it, it's going to allow us to transition faster to a clean grid because we're going to reduce our peaks. And right now, uh, the peak or, or the, the, that, that is, well, I, you're the engineer. What, what, what is the peak? So peak is basically when uh, the base baseline demand that the city ex oh, sorry the generator expects out of the city for the next six or six or eight months uh, is already projected, and when the demand actually increases, it uh, requires more thermal power plants to come online, and these are the ones that ramp up and down um, in a in fairly like a couple of hours or two, you know, and. Uh, to, for them to ramp up and ramp down so quickly, they require fuels that combust very quickly, which is basically oil uh, rather than natural gas, which has higher heat capacity, right? So when you have to run these peaker plants, then these are called peaker plants to basically offset the peaks and provide the demand at that time. They produce a lot of carbon. And they're the dirtiest plants. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's interesting, when we measure, this is approved by the EPA, when we measure the carbon emissions reductions of, of each of our projects, our energy efficiency projects, we are authorized by the Environmental Protection Agency to measure against the emissions of the peaker plant. Because every efficiency project we do, because that efficiency is running all year long, reduces the peak. So by definition, we're helping uh, control uh, against peaking and therefore keeping the peaking plants offline. Absolutely. So that's an underlying policy about how to count the emissions reductions value of an efficiency project. Yeah, uh, which, is, which is great. It is to look at the peak because yeah. that's the dirtiest. That's what we have to get out first, and that that's one of the, that's why I'm saying transition to energy storage. Yeah. Um, which, which they call, which we also call it as the non-baseline load. So right. if exactly. anyone wants to research this, it's non-baseline load for it by the EPA. So yeah. Yeah. So a lot of great reading material out there. <laughs> it will not put you to sleep. Not if you're us. I love this stuff. Um, so, so the third sector of greenhouse gas uh, would be waste. Uh, and, and for us, how we're looking at waste is not so much in terms of recycling and taking um, organics and glass and you know whatever materials out of the, the waste stream. Uh, we're, what we look at is waste to energy projects um, and there's a lot of interesting technology out there that actually allows you to, you to take waste whether it's wood mass, biomass or other high valuable waste and convert it into energy whether that is um, you know uh, what we'll call renewable natural gas um, and you can put that directly into the uh, into the, the pipeline for, for natural gas, or you can put it into motor vehicles and you can sell it. Um, so Charlie, what are some of the values of RNG and where, where do we see this biogas or RNG going? Yeah, and I think this is a, a great topic for us to, to, to go deeper on in another segment, but th this, is the, this is the critical nexus for us between waste and, and carbon-free Boston. You know, um, Boston created 1.2 million tons of solid waste in 2017. It's a lot. Which is a ton. 25% of that is, is diverted, meaning reused, recycled, or treated biologically without emissions. 
75% of that is that is sent for, for treatment. And what we're interested in is, are there treatment processes that create energy or create fuel that's essentially from a, from a renewable biological source like wood waste or food waste. Um, we are interested in this because um, ultimately that renewable natural gas could fire our cogeneration plants, which are a baseload on-site resilience solution that right now runs on natural gas. It does reduce emissions because it uses waste heat. But can we really reduce emissions in the context of carbon-free Boston by powering these really good on-site sources that can keep you running during an outage and do it with, with renewable natural gas, which is green gas as opposed to dirty fossil fuel gas. So, and that's, you know, waste could be that fuel source. And we may want to dive deeper on that in yeah. the future. Yeah, I think that, that could yeah. uh, warrant its own episode. Yeah. Uh, so, but, all right, so, so the fourth, a greenhouse gas driver is transportation and we could summarize this with one word or I guess two depends if you call it EV or electric vehicles um, you know from Tesla to electric buses um, and also you know that we could I we, we don't need to talk about the T and how great of and modern that system is um, but we, we, we can talk about electric better buses. public transport is a part of it <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, multimodal. Yes. Multimodal. Meaning lots of different ways to get from point A to point B. Yeah, electric vehicles have to go there, have to get there. Buses and cars, basically, right? Transportation as important that it is, uh, but the carbon free report actually has uh, very clearly mentioned in their approach that our analysis notably omits air travel at Logan Airport and the consumption of goods and services. So, I mean, as we all know that maximum amount of emissions from transportation actually is coming from work trade by shipping and by air cargo so i think we need to uh, i mean the next scope for this report could be into that of how uh, boston is a very big port has a couple of ports if i'm not wrong mm -hmm. uh, so how can we decarbonize them too yeah that's a great point it's not part of our territory but decarbonizing air travel and decarbonizing shipping those, those are Hope somebody's worked on that because so you're right it's not counted in this report and it's a part of the footprint yeah yeah, yeah. Now, i've recently uh went on a couple different um like calculate my personal carbon impact mm -hmm. and you know it, it looks at everything from all right how much electricity and heating uh oil or, or natural gas do you use uh, but then you know how many miles are you commuting what types of uh, transportation are you using in that commute um, and but it does not the one that I, there was that one then I looked at another one that was asking me how much red meat was I eating how much fish was I eating was I looking at local so all of these add into you know did it ask you how many miles you flew on an airplane each year it did and yeah. it's would he, and this one even let me pick the it went by airport and it calculated the exact um, carbon impact of that trip um, so you know, a transatlantic, you know, flight adds up. Um, across America, you know, that's a, it's like a half a metric ton. Uh, it's, a, it's a lot. Does yeah. one person count for a half a metric ton for flying across the country? That, that's how they were. Wow. Yeah. That's because amazing. we were 
and this is a part of this was a part of our one class project when I was doing my masters in uh, at Northeastern University was uh, which green calculator out there is more accurate. Actually, none of them take the whole life cycle into consideration uh, of your daily use versus what you project you're going to consume later. So that life cycle analysis is done uh, is still in process and research at least. So I have, a pro I have a proposal. Let's, <laughs> at one of these, for one of these, let's use the one that you guys found to be the best and walk through it. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. yeah, that'll be interesting. That'd be great. See what our footprint yeah, is. Yeah, let's see who the cleanest is. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're taking an honesty pledge here. Yeah. yeah. All right, good. All right, so on that note, uh, I, I think that that's the, our summary on the Boston Free Carbon Report. I think it's a great report and it's a great first step but now the hard part is people got to execute on it. Got to get done. That's why we're here. Got to make it happen. So hopefully this was informative and you go drink yourself a woods and water. It's a good or beer. a tiny beautiful something. Or a tiny beautiful something. <laughs> on that note, thanks. This Thank is you. Beers Podcast. Thanks everyone.